we are behind on our time. Um, I take responsibility for that. We got started a little late, uh, and, but we're not going to quit at 12. That's 15 minutes, but I'll keep an eye on it. Y'all don't watch the clock. I'll do that for you. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, as um, I preached this a few years ago, I wanted to deal with it again because of the baptism this morning, and uh, a little different approach to the text on this occasion. Uh, and again, I think that we so seldom seek to improve upon our baptism, as the confession says, that it's well worthwhile for us to remember that Though we were baptized a long time ago, it is still a means of grace in the life of the Christian. Though you may remember it or not, you know that you were. Those of you who do remember it again have the responsibility of improving your baptism. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 down through verse 15. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Let's hear the words of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him uh, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. That is, he set aside and nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God, ask you to pray for me as I preach this text, and pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us, and pray that you would help me to preach this text, and pray, O God, you would bless your congregation as they hear it, and that your Spirit, O God, would apply it to them, and that we would not be concerned about the hour of the day. But rather, O oh Lord, about your word, help me, O oh Lord, to preach with clarity and unction and apply your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. History is filled with symbolic images. Now, for example, if you go to look at the tomb of Napoleon, it's in a region close to Paris. Uh, the, the sarcophagus is down in sort of a well, and there's a wall surrounding that. And you have to go and you have to bend over and look at the casket of Napoleon. And the idea was that his regal reign would still be honored even in his death as people bowed to him. There was one person that refused to do that, Adolf Hitler. Hitler said he would not bow to anybody, so he had his minions put mirrors around 
so he could look at the mirrors and see the coffin of Napoleon without having to bend over. Again, symbolism. Woodland Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, was designed by a friend of mine, Larry Albert. Some of you know the Alberts, I think, from some years ago. They used to be here. And I was talking to Larry, and I just made a few suggestions, and he did uh, agree to them. And this guy is a brilliant architect. He has designed a lot. He's designed the the, uh, library at Beauvoir. Uh, he's the only architect who've done some extra work on the house after the hurricane came through. So he is a brilliant uh, architect. And I suggest it will put seven steps going up to the main building, seven steps indicating perfection. And, and this, I think this is his idea. As you walk in from the uh, foyer into the main building, there is a glass that goes up to the ceiling representing going into the most holy place. Again, symbolism, right? doesn't mean anything per se, but it is symbolic. And so all throughout history, we see things that symbolize or represent something else. Well, the same is true in the Old Testament. Uh, The Passover represented the redemption and the liberation of the people from God's wrath and condemnation as they observed the mandates. They put the blood above the doors. They were leaving Egypt that night, and the angel of death passed over them, symbolic of redemption. The reality of redemption which came to pass in the New Testament under the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision, again, a symbol of the removal of dirt and uh, the removal of the skin that represented the heart, if you will. Well, as I said a moment ago, circumcision was bloody. Baptism is not. Redemption has been accomplished. And redemption by God's grace has been applied to all of those who know and claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is that so often we pass over the sacrament of baptism because we fail to look beyond the physical expression of it, as we saw here this morning, to what it actually symbolizes. It means something. Again, it's not something that we do uh, to observe whenever there is either through an adult profession of faith coming to be baptized or a child being presented to the Lord, a child of believing parents coming to be baptized. It represents something. And what baptism represents to us, what it symbolizes to us, is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ and the cleansing of our sin by the washing of the blood of the Lord Jesus. We are washed clean, if you will, our union and our cleansing by faith through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it signifies that to us as his people. And it means it's something that we should take very seriously. It means, as the confession says here, that we are to seek to improve our baptism, our union with Christ, are being raised with him, as it says in the scriptures, something that we are to do with regularity. In the first place, then, our union with Christ calls for us to practice our religion, uh, to be faithful to exercising our commitment to Christ through obedience. If you would look at verse 6 of chapter 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. There are two things referenced here in this text. The first is that of conversion. 
therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, he's calling them back to that time that they heard the word of God taught and the word of God preached to them. That they, by his grace, embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as the solution to and the answer to the sins that they had committed against the Lord. As you received Christ, he says here. And they are to be careful then to abide in Christ. They are to walk in him. Uh, as you came to a conviction of your need for Christ for your salvation... So continue in that stream of thought, in that knowledge. Think back when you first became a believer. Think back when you first came to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are you to think back on the reality of the gospel, you are also to seek to gain in the righteousness and holiness of God through sanctification. And so again here in the text... Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. As you were converted now, so walk in the reality of the knowledge of the gospel and of redemption and obedience. The idea of walking uh, carries the idea of practice. If we look back for a minute at Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. So walking then carries the idea of faithfully adhering to the gospel. It is that I have been to revivals before that took place in Hattiesburg with, with Larry Albert, uh, the Central Baptist Church, and Lester Roloff was the preacher. Everybody, somebody know Lester? He was something. Um, died in a plane crash, but uh, the idea was you could be saved all over again. There were people there who had been baptized like six or seven times. That's not biblical. There's one faith, one hope, one baptism. And so people aren't saved and then lost and then saved and then lost and then saved and then lost. That is contrary to what the Bible teaches. There is a habitual walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, habitual seeking to practice righteousness. Jesus said, and you've heard me say it before, I'll continue to say it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that's not to say that we will not fall into sin. That's not to say that times Christians don't fall into very serious sins. They do. Christians can commit adultery. Christians can commit murder. Christians can take the Lord's name in vain. Christians can harden their hearts in such a way as to basically divorce themselves from the church. Now, that's not going to, they're not going to continue in that. One of two things is going to happen. Either the Lord is going to take you out of this situation and bring you home or bring you to repentance if you're a Christian. There was a man, I've told you this before, hopefully you won't remember, uh, which may. There was a man in Presbytery who was very, very central in Presbytery. Uh, he was always there. He was always speaking. He was always up front. He was, did some kind of fulfill some kind of office or something. Anyway, it came out that this same man was beating his wife. He would never, ever have suspected this. He was going to be disciplined. 
by his church. He died of a heart attack. And I was talking to another presbyter and he said this. I think the Lord took him because he was sinning so much. And we read that in scripture in, in Corinthians where it says some have fallen asleep. That means that the Lord took them. So if a believer falls into some kind of rebellion and hardens their heart as King David did, either one of two things are going to happen. Either God's going to take you out of the situation and take you home to get you to quit sinning, or he's going to send somebody like Nathan to you and talk to you and use that to bring you to repentance. He's not going to leave us unto ourselves. He is going to deal with us. So we are to walk faithfully before the Lord. We are to do so by seeking to be obedient to him. And as he calls them back to think of the time when they were first converted, listen to this. There is no improvement in doctrine. I'm not saying there aren't things that we have wrong. I'm sure there are. I don't know what they are. If I did, as you, I'd get rid of it. But there's no improvement in doctrine. There's no theological better idea unless we're wrong about something again i was talking to someone one time and he said he thought the confession should be rewritten every 20 years or every 10 years or something why if it's wrong let's change it otherwise why do we have to rewrite the confession of faith doctrine does not evolve uh, it is, and I've told you this before, I know that one of the themes of Princeton, old Princeton in their seminary used to be this, nothing new was ever taught at Princeton. The idea was that their doctrine was solid and it was not mutable. It did not change. So therefore what they taught, like the old hymn says, was the old time religion. Give me that old time religion. That's what they did at Princeton until that began to reject the authority of Scripture. Once you reject the authority of Scripture, it is free-for-all theologically. Anything goes, and there's no solidness, and really uh, the entirety of the foundation of the gospel is taken away. Well, there was a problem at the church at Corinth. Uh, there were those at Corinth that were teaching things that were not true. That's the concern of the Apostle Paul here as he deals with this in chapter 2. 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These people had new ideas. These people had improved ideas, a new and better gospel, if you will. Also, in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, putting up without reason, uh, I'm sorry, visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding to the truth. So there are these things that were being taught in the church that were not biblical. And see, this is the responsibility of the elders to see to it that what is taught and preached in the church is consistent with the Bible. But here these things were having an influence upon the people, and they gave the appearance of being righteous. 
you can imagine that these people put forth the extra efforts. They, put, they go the extra mile. Only problem is the extra effort has nothing to do with sanctification, but rather with the doctrines of men. I know that there are different views on the use of alcohol in the church. I know some people are teetotalers. That's fine. I know others think it's okay and have biblical principles to, uh, to guide them. But it's not okay to abuse it. That's where the line is drawn. But we cannot say that if you use alcohol in an appropriate fashion that you're less spiritual than someone else. It doesn't. Wednesday night prayer time. It's the most poorly attended service of the church and has been throughout the centuries, at least ever since I've been growing up. I know a man, they refused to have Wednesday night prayer time because he said this, it becomes a measure of sanctification. In other words, if you attend it, then you're a better Christian than those who don't attend it. And that's not true. Simply not true. The church is not commanded to have a midweek prayer service. It's not there. You can have one, which is a good thing, but then you can't say to someone, you have to come to Wednesday night. Prayer time. Show me the Bible. Well, it's not there. Therefore, you can't mandate something like that. Now, I wish, if I may use that word from the pulpit, wish, that we had 100 people there on Wednesday night. Because I believe that that's important, that prayer is very, very important in the life of the church and the people of God. But we cannot insist upon it. What we can say is this, you need to be here on the Lord's Day service. Because the Bible commands it. Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. And the pattern of the New Testament, first day of the week, first day of the week, first day of the week. And when people join the church, they promise to uh, support the church and its worship and work to the best of their ability. That at least means coming to worship on the Lord's Day. That's the least of it. And as God's people, and that it is that we should be faithful in wanting to be here on the Lord's Day. You can say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And let it not be always glad when they said it's time to go home. Uh, so they said, let's go into the house of the Lord and worship. And we're all engaged, you see. Uh, you're not just sitting there. You're engaged in worship. As you recognize that the angels have gathered around in here, and they're watching us worship, and they're hearing us sing praises to God, and they love to hear that, they love to see that. The angels delight in Christ being honored and God's name being upheld. They delight in that. And so when we sit here, and I know, because I've done it before, that uh, old man, Sandman, comes around, and he begins to throw dust on us, and we begin to get that, that, oh, my, that irresistible, oh, can't be beaten, dreariness and sleepiness, which is hard to overcome. Uh, we need to give out ice, people rub it on their face when that, when that begins to happen. Uh, so you don't end up falling asleep. Nor we, I know we have concerns that weigh us down, those types of things. But we are to be engaged in worship. And that means we have to participate in heart and mind. Uh, so 
And we are not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. And the, uh, the reality of it is that we lack nothing, he says, in Christ. He says that in the text. We lack nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a very, very strong statement and a very important statement. We lack nothing in Christ. We lack nothing of knowledge. We lack nothing of righteousness. We lack nothing concerning work or peace because Christ has done all that for us. Uh, it is not that you need somehow and in some way to complement the work of Christ in the cross of Calvary. Now, it be denied the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus. So we are complete in him. There's no new knowledge we need to learn in order to be saved. There's no new deed we need to do in order to have salvation. There is no uh, work that we need to do. And it is that as a believer, we should live our lives in peace. I love what David said in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. He had lost that because he had rejected God, if you will, in a sense, by refusing to repent. But these things, and, and, and by the way, the fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned in the Scripture, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, are not automatic. They don't just happen. It takes work on our part. If you're not a man of peace, it's your fault. And you're ignoring the help of God's Spirit. When we come into a conviction that we're troublemakers or that we don't have peace, uh, we pray for it. When we come under the conviction or recognition we don't have joy, well, we pray for it. And recognize that our joy is not centered in and based upon the things of this life, though they bring us joy. I can't tell you what joy it was for me. I had a hard time fighting back emotion when I baptized little, little uh, Palmer this morning. Very difficult time. But our joy is in Christ. Our joy and rejoice in the Lord always we read in the Scriptures so that we think about things, to reflect upon these things, and recognize that we have to strive for these things. What does it say in the Bible? Strive for peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There's our responsibility to pursue after sanctification in our lives as God's people. And he points to the greatness of Jesus for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon. There's several more pages. And it's, well, maybe save it for next week. But this is no slight statement for a man who hated Jesus, who persecuted Christians, who thought as he hated Jesus and as he persecuted Christians that he was doing God's work. He was a moralist. Uh, he was a Pharisee. And in the thinking of this man, Saul, who came to be the Apostle Paul, as he took a Greek name upon himself to minister to the Greeks, uh, that he was doing God's service. He was doing God a favor. He was doing God's work by dealing with this heretic named Jesus, who claimed to be God. And he was even killing this, the, uh, uh, the followers of Christ. And then he makes this statement. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Christ was fully and completely God in the flesh. And it's an encouragement here, you see. So don't think, he's telling these first century Christians, don't think that you have to do something else by adhering to some philosophy, by embracing some sort of asceticism in order to be a Christian, in order to be right with God. You look to Christ and Christ alone. And in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. You remember when the disciples said, show us the Father and that's enough. He said, why do you ask me that question? You know, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus. That's what God is like. Study the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll see exactly what God is like. He has authority over the creation. He has authority over spiritual things. And he rules over the holy angels. And he rules over the days of our lives. So as I bring this to a close, as we think about this, recognize our responsibility to live as Christians. You think back upon when you first heard the gospel, if you can ever remember that. If you may not remember, you may have been raised in a church. And it's not a time that you don't remember um, uh, knowing Christ. What a blessing that is to be raised in a church by a Christian family. What a blessing that is. But as we live our lives and we encounter those obstacles to our faith, remember how great your God is. We were talking in my study about the... Jimmy Webb Telescope. And all the things, and it seems my understanding that they thought as they went deeper into the far recesses of space that they would see nothing but little dust particles. Because their idea was, well, space, you know, when the thing blew up, it only went so far. What's outside of that was dust particles. That's not true. As far as the eye of that machine can see, there is creation. There are planets, there are stars, there are solar systems spread throughout the galaxy. And there's no way in the world anybody can say that happened by chance. You talk about a leap of faith, that's the leap of faith that Kierkegaard talked about. Or was it Kant that talked about it? I'll look it up. The great leap of faith. It wasn't we talking about embracing Christ, No. The great leap of faith is believing that all that happens and all that is came about by chance. No, it is our great God that brought those things about. And it was our great Savior who created those things, who all the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. That he has redeemed you from the curse of the law by his life and death and resurrection. And our baptism points to the reality of that. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Doesn't save anybody. It is an act of obedience. But if you've never been baptized and you die in faith in Christ, you're going to go to heaven. Because it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.